Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany, and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Hello, welcome back to New Scientist Weekly, your curated selection of the week's science stories. I'm Christy Taylor in New York. And I'm Timothy Revel, also in New York. This week, how to build a bridge over a moving glacier, plus a wirelessly charged quantum battery that never ages. We'll also talk about how archaeologists are reconstructing the shoes of China's famed terracotta army, and why you can thank the evolution of special ape shoulders for your never falling face first down a tree, but also for your ability to swing a baseball bat, throw rocks, and dislocate your shoulder. Ouch. But first, Christy, how's this for a start to the show? There's a new type of brain cell that has been discovered. You don't hear that very often, a new type of brain cell. I don't know that I even know all the existing types of brain cells, though. Yeah, well, luckily I've just brushed up on this, so um, I can tell you a bit about it. There are two main categories of brain cell. There are neurons, which they pretty much do all of the communicating in your brain, and they use chemicals called neurotransmitters to send information from neuron to neuron. Okay. That was the one I did remember. <laughs> and then there's glia, which they do a lot of crucial support tasks, and that's everything from cleaning up extra neurotransmitters, uh, immune function, repairing injuries, that sort of thing. But now researchers think they found a new type of brain cell, and it's a sort of hybrid. It's a glia-type cell, but it can also send messages. When our powers combine. <laughs> All right, that's neat. But how is it that no one saw this before? Well, the thing is, there's a team that thought they had seen this before uh, about 20 years ago, but no one had been able to replicate the results. So what's changed is that a team in Switzerland has now done some very modern and very targeted genomic analysis of mouse brain cells, and they found evidence of the proteins needed for this sort of glia communication. And then they looked back through existing genomic data from humans and found evidence that this also occurs in us. That is all extremely intriguing. But does a new brain cell type really affect our understanding of, say, like our brain health or function? Well, we hope that it will, and hopefully it will be useful if, I mean, it's pretty fascinating either way. But the new cell, it's called a glutamatergic astrocyte. And the, Say that 10 times fast. <laughs> yeah, glutamatergic, glutamatergic. Please write in if I'm saying that wrong. <laughs> and it's got that name because it secretes glutamate, which is the most common neurotransmitter. And then the astro bit, well, that name comes from the fact that it has these star-shaped branches. And astrocytes, they're often found hanging out around neurons. And then these branches allow them to connect to lots of neurons at the same time. So the researchers are speculating that having astrocytes that can send neurotransmitters might actually enable a sort of coordinated, large-scale communication across the brain, the kind of thing that neurons aren't as good at. And this coordinated communication, that's also what breaks down in conditions like Parkinson's. So maybe this new hybrid astrocyte, it could help us understand what's happening with Parkinson's and perhaps enable treatments down the road. 
That is really interesting. Okay, I'm sold. But I've also got another cool biomedical story for us. This one is about the effort to create more organs for transplantation for people who need them and some encouraging progress towards growing human kidneys in pigs. Very interesting. Tell me more. Well, this time we're talking about kidneys that are made of mostly human cells, but some pig cells, and they're grown in pig embryos. They're humanized kidneys, so to speak. The idea is that if you can use stem cells to grow a human kidney in a pig, you won't have the same issues of rejection that you might have with sort of straight up pig organs. Hmm. But it's actually quite hard to ensure that organs stay human when you try to grow them in pigs. Uh, The pig cells outcompete our cells and you end up with just another pig kidney as the embryo continues to develop. Hmm, I see. I feel like this sort of research we've heard a lot about over the years. So is the trick finding a way to keep the human cells thriving and not being overrun by the pig cells? Right. And have we managed that? Yeah, there's a team that thinks they've managed to keep kidneys 50 to 60% human cells after nearly a month of embryonic development. It did take some engineering, though. They had to modify the human cells so they wouldn't self-destruct as easily as you know cells often do when they're under stress. And they had to clear out a genetic space or niche for the human kidney development process, which they did by removing two genes from the pig embryo related to that. So the pig cells also just didn't know how to make a kidney and the human cells could kind of keep their job, as it were. It's so amazing that we can do that. Are there any risks to putting human cells in pigs? Like if the human cells are now doing so well, is, I mean, this maybe sounds like a silly question, but (laughs) is it possible that the pigs become just a little bit too human for comfort? That is a question to consider. And the researchers did try to look for signs that that might you know, happen either in the sort of central nervous system or Mm. even in the reproductive cells that could possibly sort of pass on to another generation of pig-human hybrids in those sort of sci-fi scenarios. Um, But they did, they scanned the embryos for signs of human cells outside the kidneys, and they found almost none. So just a few in the spinal cord, nothing to indicate that the human stem cells were differentiating into, you know, nervous system or reproductive cells. Okay, cool. Uh, So pig-human hybrids are not on the cards for a while yet. Not just yet. So one last one for you. How about a new kind of cosmic explosion? Tim, you know I'm always game for more explosions (laughs) in space. Well, this one, it's brighter than most supernovas in the universe, as bright as hundreds of billions of suns. But it also seems to last half as long. So you've got to be really quick to see it. And the team that did, well, they were from Queen's University, Belfast. And they said that the explosion both faded and cooled down much faster than they would have expected if it was just any old normal supernova. You know, I don't really think of normal when I think of supernovas. It's Mm. not something I see every day. But what is fast in supernova terms? Well, usually a normal, very bright supernova, that will fade to about half of its peak luminosity within a month. But then in that time, this explosion was only 1% of its peak, so basically gone. And it's also in a location that just doesn't really make sense with what we normally know about supernovas, because it's 2 billion light years away in a spot filled with small sun-like stars. Not really any stars big enough to go supernova. Okay, so it's really bright. It fades really fast, and it's really weirdly located. Tim, what does it all mean? So we only know of two other events like this one that had the same sort of properties. And the team says it's possible these luminous fast coolers, as they're calling them now, this little group, they may be the result of a black hole colliding with a star. That would be a pretty amazing thing for us to be seeing, but we have such little data about them at the moment that they'll need to do a few more observations of similar explosions before they can really test that idea. 
All right, our next story involves some travel. We're going to go to Alaska, where Denali National Park is home to the highest peak in North America. Every year, hundreds of thousands of visitors travel to the park, relying on a single gravel road for access. But that road is sinking, in one spot in particular, at an increasingly fast rate as Alaska warms and the permafrost melts. And it turns out that one spot, it's a glacier. Freelancer Alec Loon went to Denali to look at the first effort to build a bridge over a moving glacier and what the future of engineering our way around the impacts of climate change may look like. Hey there, Alec. Hey there. Take us to the scene. How is climate change reshaping the park? Well, Denali National Park is actually mostly permafrost. 80% of Alaska is permafrost, which is just permanently frozen ground, frozen year-round, even in the summertime. Three-fourths of Denali was had near-surface permafrost previously. But of course, as the climate warms, that permafrost is starting to thaw. Now the estimate is that about half of Denali has permafrost underneath that. And the prediction is that by 2050, only 6% of Denali will have near-surface permafrost. So that's changing a lot of things in the park, including the, the mountains themselves, because in a way, a lot of these mountain slopes are held together by permafrost. They're kind of frozen together. And then when that ice starts to thaw, the mountain slopes start to move. So that's what happened to Denali National Park's only road. And this is a very important road for the park. Denali is not like other parks you've probably been to. It doesn't really have vehicle access. Vehicles can only come about 15 miles into the park. And it doesn't have any trails except at the very entrance. So most of the park is just completely untrammeled wilderness with this one gravel road going through it. So the vast majority of people who come to Denali get a bus tour run by the park, and they get on a bus that goes down this 90-mile road all the way to nearby Mount Denali itself. And the road was built kind of up the mountainside, along the mountainside, a very steep mountainside. And uh, when they built it, they thought that this was solid rock. But as the climate started to warm, that rock started to move. And eventually they realized in pretty recent years, that's actually mostly ice. Up to 80% of the rock underneath the road in that exact spot is ice. So that ice, once it started thawing, started moving downhill and taking the road with it. So the road was basically collapsing downhill, first a couple inches a year, then a couple feet a year. And it got up to the point where it was collapsing downhill at about an inch every hour and a half. And when you say it's mostly ice, you mean this is a very specific kind of glacier, in fact, right? A, a rock glacier. Yeah. So this got the name Pretty Rock's Landslide because they thought it was a landslide for a while. But just in the past couple of years, they've realized it's actually probably a rock glacier. You know, we have glaciers that are mostly ice, but on the other, other end of that, there are glaciers that are mostly rock. And then there's a whole spectrum in between of, you know, various kinds of glaciers that are basically rock suspended in ice. And so that's what the, what the Pretty Rocks landslide actually is. It's a rock glacier. It's a mixture of rock and clay suspended in ice. So what does this mean for the road? You know, it seems like it can't easily be rerouted. So they've got to build a bridge in one way or another over this moving rock and ice glacier. So when the road started really collapsing downhill quickly, you know, up to an inch every hour and a half, what they had been doing before, which was trucking in just hundreds of truckloads of gravel a week, 
and just putting on top of the road, leveling it off, kind of shoring up the road every time it slipped downhill. They couldn't do that fast enough anymore. And they had to shut it down, cutting off access to the entire western half of the park. So the idea was, you know, if you can't keep shoring up the road where the landslide is, just go over it. They had this idea that, you know, we're going to let nature take its course and we're just going to put ourselves and put the buses over that and just not even interact with it anymore. So they decided in the end to build a bridge over this moving landslide. And, you know, that bridge project, it's a, it's a 475 foot long steel truss bridge. Pretty simple in terms of engineering, at least on paper. But as soon as they started to move forward with this, they started to run into all these obstacles, very specific to this place it was in. On the one end of it, they found unstable clay. Basically, a lot of the ground in Denali is volcanic rock that has turned into this kind of soft clay. So actually, in a lot of places, the bedrock, frozen bedrock, is actually clay. You can put your finger into it. And so they had to dig out a bunch of clay from underneath the western end so that that would be down to stable rock. Then under the eastern end, they found deep permafrost. They thought that was just rock there, but actually down in that rock, there is a pocket of permafrost, and they're worried that could thaw, and then that end of the bridge could start sinking down just like the road had been doing. So they decided to build on that end what are called thermosiphons, which are these basically long tubes of liquid carbon dioxide And so this tube is half in the ground, half out the ground, and it creates this kind of circulation that draws heat out of the ground. And that can actually cool the ground. That's really fascinating. But Alaska, I mean, it's not the only place that is experiencing global warming. What does the bridge tell us about other sorts of infrastructure projects that might need to happen around the world? Well, I think this is a a real warning not only to the Arctic, which has a lot of permafrost in a lot of countries around the world, um, where infrastructure will start to thaw and become deformed and crack and subside, but also actually to, to national parks, I think, around the United States, and more broadly to the, to the whole planet. I mean, the climate crisis is going to mean that we're going to need to, at the very least, spend a lot more money on things that we now kind of take for granted, roads, bridges, dams, what have you. National parks are actually warming faster than the globe as a whole because a lot of national parks have mountainous territory. A lot of them are are in northern states, and these areas are, are warming faster. So they're seeing some of the first real dramatic impacts of climate change. Um, we saw you know flooding in Yellowstone that took out a road two years ago. We saw wildfires near Yosemite National Park. A hurricane hit the Everglades a couple of years ago. So I, I think this is really kind of a, a wake-up call for us to really reimagine how we plan and build infrastructure in national parks and around the country. I think the, the thing that, to keep in mind is that you know, this is much, a much broader issue than just this one national park or this one road. Permafrost thaw is something that's affecting and threatening the very livelihoods of Alaska natives, many of whom still depend on subsistence hunt, hunting and fishing and live in places that are that are very vulnerable to permafrost though. All right, Christy, should we tell them? Tell them about what? You know, the other fascinating podcasts that we've got. I don't know. They might leave this one before we get to the special ape shoulders. I think those special ape shoulders, they're going to keep people interested to the end. Okay, fine. Go ahead. Tell them. Excellent. All right, folks, you know how every week we have something brilliant to listen to that has nothing to do with the news. 
Well, we've got a particularly wonder-filled episode of Culture Lab this week, and it's all about what the world's animals can perceive that we can't. Science journalist Ed Yong explained it all in a wonderful interview with Christy, and that's already out in the New Scientist podcast's feed. And if you can believe it, Pluto is coming back to planetary status. The Dead Planet Society has decreed it so. What would it take to get Pluto to count as a planet again? With your magic powers, the best way would be to increase its mass, perhaps. I would expect if we were adding mass to it and colliding things onto it, the orbit would change over time. And whether or not that new orbit would be stable, it might just be luck of the draw. So if it's not stable, does Pluto just fling out of the solar system at some point, maybe? Probably. Are you saying we could make Pluto a bullet that would zip through the solar system? (laughs) Tune in next Tuesday to find out how making Pluto a planet and bringing it into the warm embrace of the inner solar system could possibly go wrong. Worried you'll need to babysit your robot vacuum? Think again. Meet Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum with AI-powered navigation to recognize and avoid over 100 objects. It's the winner of five Best of CES awards. And Digital Trends says it boasts almost all the same features as robot vacuums that cost twice as much. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com, and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK, the nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany, and Sweden combined, the nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation, The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Next up, we've got a story about a design for an incredible new type of battery. This battery could be charged wirelessly and no matter how many times you used it, it wouldn't age. In other words, it would forever be as good at powering your devices as the day that you bought it. Now this battery, it's a quantum battery, a class of batteries that have a huge potential to solve some of the world's biggest energy storage problems. That is, if we can ever actually get them to work on a commercial scale. There's quite a lot to unpack here, so here to help us make sense of it all is our physics reporter, Carmela Padovic-Callahan. Hi, Carmela. Hello. I think we might need a bit of a quick primer here. So could you remind us, what are quantum batteries? Yeah, so quantum batteries are energy storage devices, just like regular batteries. But instead of relying on some chemical process to store energy, they use quantum effects. So you can charge a quantum battery, and then you can extract energy from it, or you can discharge it. And the thing that's holding onto the energy in between these two charging and discharging moments is some sort of a quantum process. Because quantumness is so important here, we are really talking about objects deep in the quantum realm. So you have to think about tiny diamonds with one weird atom in the center or even chunks of light as building blocks for a quantum battery. Mm. Yeah. So in like the real simplest terms, all batteries use some method to store energy. And then often that's a chemical process in the batteries that you know, but that can also be done by utilizing some of this just weird and wonderful things that happen at the quantum scale. So where could quantum batteries actually be useful? Right. The the ones that have been built so far can be charged very, very quickly. So some researchers have suggested that 
eventually, if we could get them to be big and practical, we could use them in electric cars. So then you could have almost instantaneous, unnoticeably quick battery charging with your vehicle. But we're pretty, pretty far away from that. This is a very, very new technology and, and very few have actually been built in labs. Right. And as you wrote about this week, there are some challenges when it comes to actually doing that sort of unnoticeably quick charging with quantum batteries. Researchers say that they age. What does that exactly mean? Is that the same thing that happens when my phone battery gets old, for example? Yeah. I mean, in, in so many ways, this is your classic quantum physics gives and quantum physics takes <laughs> away. Um, quantum effects that are responsible for the very fast charging of these batteries are also very fragile. So they're like extremely susceptible to any disturbance in the battery's environment. So when researchers talk about aging, they mean to say that if you leave a charged quantum battery sitting around over time, its environment will sort of corrupt it and you'll end up with less energy than you put into the battery to begin with. Right, which seems like it could be a problem for that electric car use case you were talking about, for example. So has anyone come anywhere near close to solving this problem? Yeah, I mean, again, grounding this in, in the idea that this is a very new tech, so so a lot of solutions uh, have to be tried out. We did, uh, or I did report on, on one idea this week, and they hinge sort of on charging these batteries wirelessly. So I talked to some theorists that did the math on what happens if you take a very simple quantum battery and a very simple charger for that quantum battery. And instead of making them touch, you put them far apart from each other in a sort of metal rectangular tube, and then you fill that tube with an electromagnetic field. Now, typically, you'd expect that this field would be a disturbance and destroy the charging process, like we were talking about earlier, right? You want the environment to not really touch the battery. But in this case, the researchers' calculations show that the electromagnetic field actually helps. So they told me that their equations reveal that the charging between the battery and the remote charger was basically ideal and immune to this deleterious aging process that we were just talking about. That's pretty amazing. So the wireless charging is actually what would keep the battery fresh, which I guess is completely different to what you normally get with batteries. This is all theory right now. Is this something that will actually be tested soon? I think so. Um, one person I spoke to cautioned that, you know, the calculations here for a very simple battery, a very small battery, and, and what you would really want to do is make it bigger and scale it up, maybe connect multiple batteries together to entanglement. But everyone seemed to agree that, you know, the ingredients that you need, the, the metal tube and the electromagnetic field and, and a simple battery uh, sort of for a proof of principle experiment, all of that is already out there and just needs to be put together. So, so a, a practical test is quite feasible. All right, over to ancient China. You're probably familiar with the Terracotta Army, this collection of thousands of clay statues of soldiers and other military figures that dates back 2,000 plus years. Well, scientists have recently recreated the type of shoes they wore, and it turned out they were surprisingly flexible and slip resistant. I think I would actually like some for myself, even. Our London-based reporter, Chen Lai, has the story. Hey, Chen. Hi. So I just gave my best summation of the Terracotta Army, but can you tell us a bit more about why it's so important to archaeologists who are trying to understand China's history? Yeah, so the Terracotta Army is the collection of over 8,000 terracotta statues that depict the armies, including the warriors, chariots, and horses of China's first emperor, Qin Shi Huang. They were buried alongside him around 2,200 years ago to protect him in the afterlife. 
Since their discovery in 1974 near Xi'an in China, they've become pretty famous and has provided archaeologists with some great insight into the ancient Chinese military. For example, we have a good idea of what weapons real-life Qin dynasty soldiers may have wielded, because the terracotta warriors carry fully functional ones such as swords, spears, and bows. That's amazing that they're fully functional weapons. I imagine one of the reasons we actually know this is because the statues are just kind of really well preserved. Is that correct? Exactly. One of the lesser understood aspects of the warriors, though, were their shoes. So a pair of researchers at Sichuan University in China decided to investigate more closely. Most of the terracotta warriors are in a standing position, so we don't get a good look at the soles of their shoes. So the researchers decided to analyse the soles of one of the kneeling archer statues. After some close examination, they determined that its square-toed shoes had upturned tips and the sole was around 1.5 centimetres thick. The shoes also had circular markings on the bottom, which were thought to represent stitches. These circles were more concentrated at the front of the shoe and the heel, indicating that the real shoe was thinner in the middle. All right, so that gives us a pretty good idea of what the shoes look like. But then how do you go from that to really understanding whether the shoes that they were modelled on were actually any good? So the researchers noticed that the shoes seemed to look a lot like real ones that were unearthed in the region from the Qin dynasty. So they decided to use a traditional shoemaking technique from the period to make the replicas. The sole was made by overlaying multiple layers of linen cloth and sewing them together using a fibre called rami, which also made up the body of the shoes. They then used denser stitches in the top and bottom sides of the sole to replicate the circular markings that we saw on the statue. So I guess the question I'm then left wondering is, if I'm a soldier about to spend a lot of time on my feet, <laughs> were these shoes actually comfortable? Uh, potentially, yes. So in lab tests, the shoes were found to be much more flexible and slip resistant than other shoes that existed at the time. And if that was the case, that Qin Dynasty soldiers really wore the same shoes as the ones seen on the terracotta warriors, then these traits may well have helped them in battle and may partly explain why the army was so successful. and monkeys. We're cousins, if not particularly close these days. But while we share quite a lot of traits with them, there are some notable exceptions. One of those is our shoulder and elbow joints, which may have evolved to help us not fall on our faces when climbing down trees. Sam Wong is here. Sam, this is new information for me that I've got a different shoulder than, say, a spider monkey. Yeah, um, and this, this story particularly caught my eye as well because last week I dislocated my shoulder, so I've got my right arm in a sling now. And I didn't know this before, but apparently humans and other great apes have particularly mobile shoulder and elbow joints. So in the shoulder, there's a ball and socket joint, but it's very shallow and that lets us move our arms more freely, but it also makes them very prone to dislocation. Monkeys are built more like cats and dogs, which have a deep pear-shaped shoulder socket, and their elbows have this sticky out bit called an olecranon process that makes an L-shape. So they have a much more limited range of movement. Well, first of all, sorry about your shoulder, Sam. Thanks. Uh, but second of all, why would we have such different shoulders? I mean, I, monkeys and we, I guess, uh, all climb trees, though I'm not particularly good at climbing mm -hmm. trees myself, but you know, presumably our ancestors <laughs> did. Well, the main difference between monkeys and great apes is uh, great apes are bigger. So um, scientists thought that when apes got heavier, they needed this greater flexibility so that it would cost them less energy to climb up trees and it would they would have less of a risk of falling. But when you look at chimpanzees climbing upwards, they use their arms pretty much like monkeys do, 
they have similar angles at the shoulder and the elbow to, to what monkeys would. Another idea was that it was for hanging from branches, but that hasn't really been proven either. Yeah, so it sounds like a bit of a mystery. Has something now changed? Have we worked out what's going on? Yeah, so um, two students at Dartmouth College, uh, Luke Fannin and Mary Joy, noticed that chimpanzees have a different climbing style for coming down compared with when they're going up. So to investigate further, they went to Uganda to film wild chimpanzees in a you know, pretty nice research project for them. And they also yeah. went to uh, went to Ivory Coast and they filmed a kind of monkey called the Suti Mangabe. And then they used sports analysis software to measure the angles of their shoulders and their elbows while they were climbing up and down. And they found that when they were climbing up, both the monkeys and the chimps used their shoulders and elbows in similar ways. They had similar angles there. But when they were climbing down, chimpanzees flexed their shoulders 21 degrees more and their elbows 33 degrees more than the mangabays did. So that meant they could hold their bodies further away from the tree and press their feet against the tree trunk. So their weight was going into the tree and rather than slipping against the trunk towards the ground. Yeah, that that seems to make sense. I guess if you're heavy and you have a giant heavy brain, climbing down is actually the hard part. The angle's a bit strange. Mm. I mean, if you've done climbing or, or like walk down a hill, you might have noticed, you know, you think that gravity's mm. on your side when you're coming down, but actually, you know, gravity is making you accelerate and you need to put energy into slowing down so that you don't fall and hurt yourself. Uh, and in, when you're climbing down a tree, then your arms are going to be doing a lot of that work. So they think maybe apes evolved these more mobile joints so they could control their heavy weight better when they were coming down. Uh, or maybe the arm anatomy changed for a different reason, but this enabled apes to grow bigger. Either way, the increased range of motion in our arms has had lots of benefit for humans because we used our mobile arm joints for gathering fruit and throwing things. Apparently, monkeys are terrible at throwing things. I don't know if you knew. <laughs> um, and means we can play tennis and all these other fun things. So yeah, lots of, lots of advantages. And unfortunately, frequent dislocation injuries are the price that we pay. Yeah, I'm, I'm not very good at tennis, but hopefully even I could beat a monkey. <laughs> And before we go, just a quick little update on the current moon happenings. After landing at the South Pole on August 23rd, the Indian space agency ISRO has put its lunar lander and its rover to sleep as the sun begins to set on the moon. Night on the moon lasts about two weeks, and during that time, the lander and the rover won't be able to charge their batteries. So ISRO says it hopes they will be able to reawaken them around September 22nd. Or if you listen to Green Day, wake me up when September's over. <laughs> So the Japanese space agency JAXA also successfully launched its moon lander, dubbed the Moon Sniper, this week, and it aims to land within a 100-metre area near the Shioli crater on the near side of the moon. Normally, landing zones are much more like 10 kilometres wide, so that would be a really impressive feat to land on such a small area. Mm -hmm. That descent is expected to happen sometime in February, so we'll bring you more on that nearer the time. All right, that's it for this week. Thank you so much for listening. As always, our show notes have links to all the stories you heard about today. You can subscribe to our show on whatever app you're listening on. And if you like this show, we'd love for you to let us know by putting a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. It really helps. Thank you so much and bye for now. Bye. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. 
the nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.